Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 22. I mentioned in the last episode that this entire section dealing with the holiness requirement for priests is presented over two chapters in six discrete units, and that each of these units can be very easily identified because each one of them ends with some version of the phrase, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. We heard that phrase in verses 8, 15, and 23 in chapter 21, and we'll hear it three more times now in chapter 22. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. All right, let's just pause here so that we can make sure that we understand what we are reading. The ESV translation is not as clear as we might hope here. The JPS Torah commentary is a little more straightforward. It has God saying to Moses, Instruct Aaron and his sons to be scrupulous about the sacred donations that the Israelite people consecrate to me, lest they profane my holy name. Close quote. That gets us a little bit closer to the main idea. This section is talking about the great care that must be taken by the priestly family to ensure the proper handling and consuming of the sacrificial portions. The ESV isn't wrong. If anything, it's just too literal. The Hebrew does say that Aaron and his sons are to separate themselves from the sacred portions, lest they profane my name. But then it goes on to list the reasons when and why they would do so, because normally they wouldn't. We've talked many times about how important it is for them to eat the sacred portion. But there are some situations in which they shouldn't. And there are some people associated with their household that shouldn't. So these are the situations that should cause them to draw back. That's the main idea here. The list of causes or occasions begins in verse 3. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has had an emission of semen and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord." They shall therefore keep my charge, 
lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So a person who has become unclean through contact must not eat the sacred portion while in that state of uncleanness. That's the first rule given in verse 3. We've already talked about how one might contract ceremonial uncleanness. He might come into contact with a dead body. He might come into contact with his wife's menstrual fluids. He might become unclean by nature of an emission from his own body, etc. In such cases, he is not to partake of the sacred portion until he has undertaken the steps necessary to deal with his situation. In most cases, that means bathing, washing, and waiting until the evening. Having done those things, he may eat the sacred portion. In verse 4, the situation is more dire. Here, the text envisions a person having a case of leprosy. Of course, the definition of leprosy was rather broader than it is today. We talked about that at some length in chapters 13 and 14. If a priest should contract some form of leprosy, he would, of course, be subject to all the testing and isolation methods prescribed in those chapters. And in addition, he would not be able to eat of the sacred portion until declared clean. Other than in the case of leprosy, most of the occasions listed here are relatively short-term and minor in nature. Again, one would bathe and wash his clothes and wait until evening, and afterward he would be able to eat again of the sacred portion. The basic idea here is that we must be prepared to approach what the Lord has provided. We must not bring that which is unclean into contact with that which is holy. And you can hear this same basic worldview behind many of the things that the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6, for example, he said, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. That's the exact same principle. We mustn't go out and engage in unclean activities and then go into the house of the Lord and engage with intimate activities with God. That just doesn't work. That's not appropriate. He makes a related point in chapter 10 of the same letter. This is the Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's verses 21 to 22. So there he says, we mustn't go out and engage in pagan worship and then come into the house of the Lord and take communion. That would be to bring that which is unclean into contact with that which is holy. And everything the Apostle Paul learned from the Jewish religious system militated against that. If you're going to be on intimate terms with God, then you must be very careful about what other things you come into intimate contact with. That's the basic idea. That's the rudimentary principle that is being communicated here. Verse 10. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. 
If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So here we're talking about which people associated with the priest's household may eat of the sacred portion. Obviously, his wife and children can share in it, but guests and outsiders passing through may not. Neither may a hired worker. So if you hire a guy to fix your roof, you can't make a meal for him consisting of the sacred portion. But a household slave that is a permanent member of your household, well, that's a different story. Such a person may participate. Your daughter, if she grows up and marries someone from another tribe, she may not eat of it. But if her husband dies or he divorces her and she returns to live under her father's roof, well, in that case, she may. Then in verses 14 to 16, we have some rules and processes related to what should happen if a person accidentally does eat of the sacred portion. A person shouldn't do that, but if they accidentally do, if they unknowingly do, then there is a process for that. He or she shall have to pay for the sacrifice to be re-offered and pay an additional fine. So the cost of the original animal plus one-fifth. Now, if there's an enduring principle here, it may be the extent to which it helps us define a believer's household. Who is under your spiritual authority? Who may share in your spiritual blessings and privileges? The concept of household does seem to have some validity in the New Testament. In Acts 16, for example, the text says that Paul was preaching and a woman named Lydia heard the gospel. Verse 14 says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed against us, close quote. Similarly, later in the same chapter, Paul shares the gospel with the jailer in Philippi, and he too is convicted and converted. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Closed quote. Now, I'm not arguing here for household salvation or for infant baptism by any stretch. I'm just saying that there is a sense in which the household as a unit is taken seriously in the New Testament. How seriously? And in what way specifically, people are going to debate that. But this passage in Leviticus 22 might be useful in terms of understanding how to define what a household is, spiritually speaking. Verse 17, 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land, neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them. Because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, the criteria for sacrificial offerings is very similar to the criteria for those who would serve in the tabernacle as members of the priesthood. The idea of wholeness and health is once again a very prominent concern. We offer to God our best and our brightest. We don't simply give him the things we have no other use for. You wouldn't give an old pair of socks or a second-hand clock that you bought at a garage sale to the queen or even to your mother on Christmas morning. So don't give to God your cast-offs and scraps when you come to the tabernacle to worship. That's the idea here. Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Close quote. Verse 27 stipulates that an animal must be of a certain age in order to qualify as a sacrificial offering. Only after the eighth day should it be considered viable and suitable for religious purposes. From there, a reminder is given that a parent and an offspring from among the animals are not to be killed on the same day. There are a number of conservation principles scattered across the Torah. Deuteronomy 22, verses 6 to 7, for example, says, If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. Close quote. Deuteronomy 20, verses 19 to 20, even has a law about trees. It says, When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees, 
by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? So anyone who thinks that environmentalism is somehow inconsistent with biblical religion only reveals how little of the actual Bible they have read. The need to steward and conserve and develop the natural environment is given mention in many passages, and it is here given as a reminder that the priests of God are to set an example before the people of godly living. And a component of godly living is a concern for good stewardship of the natural resources we have been entrusted with by our Creator. In terms of enduring typology in this section, R.K. Harrison is helpful here without being unduly speculative. He says, In the New Testament, Christ constitutes the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. Hebrews 9.14, 1 Peter 1.19. His death was intended to free the sinner from his iniquities, to make the body of Christian believers holy, and to remove blemishes of any kind from it. Closed quote. Amen. Christ died not just to save us, but to sanctify us and to present us a pure and spotless bride unto himself. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.